I believe most everybody knows where to turn. <laughs> we'll be finishing 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. The characteristics of agape love that the Apostle Paul has described so well in 1 Corinthians 13, especially the middle paragraph, verses 4 through 7, make most readers sigh with an immediate sense of longing for that, and at the same time, maybe another sigh with an almost despairing resignation as they realize that they'll never be able to really love completely this way, even though they may desperately want to. Agape, one of the several Greek words used for the English word love, should not be confused with philia, which is close friendship or brotherly love. And it certainly should not be confused with eros, which is the romantic sexual love. Eros is not even found in the New Testament. And what does agape mean then? As the Apostle Paul explains... In 1 John chapter 4, that's John, excuse me, agape is God's holy love for sinners like us who can do nothing to earn his love and who are utterly unworthy of the love that we receive. It's sacrificial, self-giving love that demands something of us, love that's more concerned with giving than receiving. It's the sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of others, even for others who may care nothing at all for us and who may even hate us. It's not a feeling, but a determined act of our will. It's the willful, joyful desire to put the welfare of others above our own. And as we've seen, it has no place for pride or vanity, or arrogance, or self-seeking, or self-glory. It's a choice we're commanded to make, even on behalf of our enemies. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, we saw 15 characteristics of agape, and then we read that love never ends in verse 8. It never ends or never fails, meaning it outlasts any failures and it abides forever. In other words, the kind of love that Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to see their need of is so different or unique that the additional description of agape as never ending or permanent just seems impossible. Yet to almost everyone, a love that never ends is such an attractive and beautiful idea. Along with it, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping in all things, and enduring all things. That we should, realizing that, find ourselves utterly captured by the very idea of such a love. But even though most people search and search for it, most realize at some point that a never-ending permanent love 
just can't be sustained by anybody. To reject the call to love with the same kind of love Christ loves his people with really only leaves us the same two options that non-Christians have. Only two. First, we can keep trying over and over, kind of like reliving Groundhog Day, believing at some point that we'll finally get it right. Or we can redefine love by rewriting the rules so that the definition we come up with is more in line with how we see it function in our world day to day. See if this sounds familiar with what we constantly hear in our culture. Love is that moment of warmth and connection that you share with someone. In other words, it's both emotional and it's momentary. That's the reality of life. And nearly everyone can experience that kind of love at least every once in a while, and that's redefining the kind of love that God asks us to live and give. How many folks that you know would be willing to voice a belief that real love is both unconditional and permanent? Hardly anybody, because that's not their reality. The Corinthians are in turmoil in their church because they're living without this kind of agape love. And it looks like they aren't trying hardly at all to get it right. Which, if they were trying, would only launch them into another downward spiral of trying to love and care for one another only in their own strength, which was one of the whole biggest problems that these people had that Paul is having to write them about living in their own strength. This means they probably have conveniently gone back to living according to their past unchristian values and unchristian definitions of love. And that's a redefining of the biblical love that that they were taught when they came to Christ. We can do exactly the same thing. One of the main reasons Paul has waited until chapter 13 to define biblical godly love is because he had to begin this letter by laying the groundwork of first helping them once again see their sin, which is mainly, as we've noted, selfishness and its fruit, and secondly, helping them understand much better the teachings and implications of the cross to daily life. In chapter 1, in verse 18, we read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God trying to get their attention. And in chapter 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except What? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Many of the Corinthians were not living in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ had done for them. 
how God loved them in and through Christ's person and work and faithfulness. They weren't remembering what he had done and would do for them in his grace. They were living the way they wanted to, being driven by their own desires. They weren't continuing to be grateful for how God had saved them. So they thought that they could manage on their own and figure it all out. The result? They were tearing each other apart. They desperately needed 1 Corinthians 13. If you were able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 13, the last paragraph, verses 8 through 13. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Well, you see what Paul's doing? There's a contrast between never-ending love and gifts that will pass away or cease. Paul's helping us all get ready for verse 13 in this chapter where he sums up the priority of agape love in the lives of those who profess faith in Christ. And we see this very clearly. <clears throat> if you belong to Christ, if you claim his name, then this is not an op- option. You must love, learn to love one another, especially in the church. Anything less than growing in this area brings disrepute to the name of Christ and his church. And what does it result in? Broken relationships, bitterness, and all sorts of infighting and compromise. Here in verses 8 through 10, Paul shows the Corinthians how their their priorities are dangerously misplaced. They were prioritizing the use of spiritual gifts in order to bring attention to themselves instead of prioritizing serving and building up the body of Christ in love. And as Paul continues, we also find some answers to a few questions about spiritual gifts. First, Paul makes very clear that agape... Agape, love, will never end and never fail there at the beginning of verse 8. It is permanent. 
Remember that this love actually pictures or describes or characterizes God himself. That means that Jesus Christ coming to live among us and everything he did and accomplished was driven by and characterized by agape, that kind of love. In fact, it's God's supreme characteristic. In other words, as John wrote in 1 John 5, the eternal God is love. So his love is eternal. What Paul does is he then contrasts the unfailing permanent love of God with three of the spiritual gifts which are not permanent. He shocks the Corinthians by saying that the gifts they want the most will not last forever. Isn't it just like Paul? He knows what their problem is. He knows what they're lifting up above all else. So he defines what love is and contrasts that with what they are holding up and what they're truly desiring in their hearts. Agape love is unfailing and permanent, but what they selfishly desire the most will come to an end. So we read in the rest of verse 8 through verse 10 this, As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now notice that there are two different verbs that describe what will happen to these spiritual gifts. Three times we see the word, we see two words, it's actually one word, pass away, which means to render inactive, idle, or useless. The grammar here indicates that something or someone will cause them to stop or be made inoperative. We see cease one time, and it means to stop or come to an end. The grammar here could indicate that this may be different from pass away. The difference would be that this means to cease permanently in and of itself like a battery that goes dead just because it's used up its juice. In other words, the cause for ceasing would come from within. It's a built-in something that will cause it to cease. But as D.A. Carson points out in his book, Exegetical Fallacies, this is not a consistent ar uh, argument for this particular usage. There are many times in the New Testament, such as when Jesus rebuked the storm, causing it to cease, that this verb does not mean the storm ceased in and of itself. It stopped because Jesus told it to. And in Acts 21... The rioters stopped beating Paul because they saw the soldiers in the tribune. 
Not because of some internal restraint that all of a sudden kicked in. I bring this up because you just can't only rely on this grammatical argument of different basic meanings for each of the two verbs to justify the position that the gift of tongues has ceased in and of itself. Let that sink in, because the next statement is the other side. This point, however, does not mean that there aren't other indicators concerning some gifts ceasing. The question we might want to start with is, why did Paul mention three, these three spiritual gifts here and not the others? There's not one place in the New Testament where all of them are listed all together. You've got to go several different places to see all. Well, there are several reasons why Paul didn't mention these three spiritual gifts here and not the others, why he mentioned them and not the others. One reason is most likely because these are the three spiritual gifts that the Corinthians were most proud of, and that was their problem. These three, secondly, also have a revelatory function that did seem to cease with the completion of the New Testament. Once the church's foundation was built with the apostles and New Testament prophets and Christ as the cornerstone, those three actually being that foundation, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, the unique church foundation building activity pretty much ceased. The foundation the church was being built on had been built. And you only have to build a foundation right one time. The book of Hebrews, which was written in the A.D. 60s, somewhere in there, in that decade, speaks of this function in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where the, we read this. How shall we, we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It, this salvation was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested or confirmed to us by those who heard, first the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Do you see what He's done there? He actually uses the past tense. In 1 Corinthians 12, 2 Corinthians, excuse me, 12, verse 12, we see this same emphasis again. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs, wonders, and mighty works. It attested to or confirmed the apostles in their message of Christ's person and work. Now think about this. If doing miracles had been the common experience of everybody in the first century church, or most, it would have been ridiculous for Paul to try to prove his apostleship by reminding them of the miracles that he had done. 
what would have proven? Nothing. Everybody does it. Everybody has that gift. What you find in the New Testament record is that miracles occurred in the presence of an apostle or somebody directly commissioned by an apostle. The question of whether a legitimate gift of tongues still operates today is tied to these confirming revelatory gifts. Consider that tongue's purpose was as a sign of judgment for Israel, which Paul says in the next chapter will be in, chapter 14, in verses 21 and 22. He writes, In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues, And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. He's quoting, obviously, from the Old Testament. Because Israel refused to listen and believe when God spoke plainly to them, the prophet Isaiah said the day would come when God would speak to them in a language they couldn't understand, testifying against their rejection of him. And that's in Isaiah 28. It's actually in several other places. Now, why is this important? Well, because about 15 years later, after Paul wrote this, Rome destroyed Israel. Jerusalem specifically is what we're talking about here. What does that mean? Well, it means that Judaism, as we know from the Old Testament, effectively actually ended. What? Why? Because the temple was destroyed. Because the temple was destroyed, the sacrificial system was destroyed. And the need for a Jewish priesthood was then destroyed. In other words, the requirements of the old covenant could not be fulfilled. And when that destruction occurred, the need for tongues as a judicial sign to Israel didn't have any further value. The promised consequences had already come. And fourthly here, also, did you notice the other reason in chapter 14, 22? I just read that verse, but read it again. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. What's the purpose of the gifts that Paul makes so clear? Isn't it the building up of the body of Christ? But tongues was a sign specifically given for unbelieving Jews. So why should it dominate worship? That's a pretty strong argument. Notice, too, that tongues are not specifically included in our passage today in verse 9 of chapter 13. The point behind all this, because we get off on this track and then forget the whole point of of the whole chapter, The point Paul is driving home before he deals with the Corinthians' chaotic worship services in the next chapter is that most of the Corinthians were behaving selfishly and without love one another. That is the dominant theme here. 
the spiritual gift that most of them desired, which he says several times in the next chapter, tongues had been used to bring attention and glory to the person using it instead of building up the body and serving its main purpose. So you see what happens here? He takes what they are most concerned about, which was possessing the most gratifying and self-satisfying gifts, and saying that these gifts will not last or keep going on forever. What will last forever and never fails is the love Christ demonstrated to us. Because he loved us that way, we are privileged to love one another this way. That's the message. The dominating thought for verse 11 and 12 here in our text is the contrast between what has been shown as partial with being face-to-face with the perfect. So back to verse to 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, most of you probably know that this is the next point of contention that's been argued about forever. What's the perfect? I think the best and surest way to grasp this is to understand the perfect as the consummation of history when the perfect one comes again, Jesus Christ. In verse 12, the picture of being face to face with Christ helps clear this up. In comparison with what we will receive when Christ returns and brings God's new world into the new world, the present blessings of our world now are only partial. They're imperfect. And that's part of our hope, is what he will bring when he, our hope, comes again. So Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It's kind of a in there to these Corinthians, is it not? We would say what? Grab up. Did I say it good enough? That's what he's saying. This first analogy of a child growing up to become an adult compares partial maturity in this world to complete maturity of the future in God's kingdom. So just as the speech and thoughts of a young child just don't come with a full understanding of reality, in our broken world now, sometimes we so enjoy a child's simple but profound words and thoughts and reasons that we wonder whether we'll ever really grow up. There's a way in this simpleness sometimes that gets through all of our garbage and just comes right to the point, does it not? And we just look at these little ones in amazement when they hit it because God uses that to remind us. But the point here is not about the cuteness of the profound wisdom in some little thing that a child observes. The point here is meant to convey the difference between our lack of complete understanding now in our broken world and the perfect understanding and expression that we will experience then. 
I was trying to think of a good response to that, and I, I couldn't come up with anything, which is normal these days, but other than, wow, this is really something to think about. The second analogy that Paul uses is what we see in a mirror. He uses that to convey the dimness or the lack of clarity we are used to here. Now, this is obviously not a mirror with 10 lights above it that are all 200 watt and you see every single thing so badly you just break all the bulbs and just say forget it. This is a mirror from the first century that was made out of polished metal. Guess which one? Bronze. Great color. So the reflected image that he's talking about is so imperfect at best and more than just off a little bit in the color category. And he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now... I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the Corinthians must not boast in their gifts now. And they were. Because those gifts, compared to what is in store for the Christians in the Lord's presence, are nothing. Nothing. So his conclusion is one of the best-known verses in the Bible and across the world, even for people who do not know the Lord. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now we know that the problem the world has is that it has redefined every one of those words, faith, hope, and love, and they don't mean anything close to what the biblical definitions are. But we should know better. Paul says faith and hope and love will for sure abide. Remain now and forever. By faith and hope remaining in eternity, what Paul means is that the trust or faith in the Lord that began in this life will continue forever. How many of us today need to hear that? Even if it's little, it will continue forever and grow. And the hope in the Lord that began in this life will expand and grow into an eternal expectation of His perfect plan. Get this. For our eternal existence with him. So when we go off in left field about this and think, I can't imagine singing and worshiping God forever. How boring that will become. That is so unbelievably off the mark. Everything will be geometrically increased in eternity as far as quantity and quality and every other aspect. So the hope that began in this life that you have right now, even if it's shaky, 
even if it's been shattered by news this week, last week, whenever, it will expand and grow into an eternal expectation of his perfect plan for our eternal existence in him. Why is love the greatest of these three? Because it's through faith in our sure and certain hope in Christ that love unites the Christian personally to God. And as we've seen in our Sunday school lessons, this personal relationship to the creator who made us is unique. No other people have this hope, this surety. And this happens through God's, that through God's love, we are enabled then to love one another. And it won't be perfectly when we really get this, because we'll always be really getting it more. If you like to use the example of connecting the dots, maybe we have connected the dots somewhat, and it is exciting, and it's fulfilling, and it's hopeful, and it's encouraging. But try to picture an eternal dot connecting where the dots never end, and they'll be continually being connected. We should be smiling, because that is the hope we have. Love is really a simple way to, to say what love is really, is that it is communicating grace to one another. And that's what identifies us as children of God. We still may have to make tough decisions that not everybody will understand. We still may have to stand in the gap we still may have to, you fill in the blank. But if we can do those things that God calls us to do or that would benefit the body and we can communicate grace as we do it, then that identifies us as children of God. And we shouldn't be doing it expecting a blessing, but that's what happens. That's what happens. We experience God's grace more and more, even through the love of the brethren. Let's pray. Well, Lord, you have opened our eyes again to the greatness of your mercy and grace to us. And as we ponder that and are overwhelmed by that and, are, and bow down before you, realizing the truth of those words because of the truth of what Jesus did and accomplished on our behalf. That it's a privilege to be able to love one another on those same terms, to keep showing God's grace and mercy to each other, to keep finding ways to do what you call us to do in that grace. And we pray that you would continue to equip us by your means of grace to us 
And so much of that revolves around being in your body in relationships with the people who do belong to you and seeing a humble expression of your grace when we do use your gifts to us and we use those to equip one another and encourage. Lord, we pray that we would be able to continue to see your work as you strengthen us, as you protect us, as you put burdens on our hearts that come from your heart and that we could do that learning to be patient, forthright, faithful, and giving. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for a benediction? How about a special dose from Revelation 22? You know what that's about, right? Well, here we go. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or a sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.